This morning in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, looking at verses 19 to 31, so if you want to turn there, you can. And I know that just last week, Scott was preaching from uh, chapter 8, and so if it feels like a large leap to go from chapter 8 to the end of chapter 10, uh, it is. It is quite a large leap, but what you will see, I think, is that chapters 9 and 10 are really trying to reiterate one theological point, and that is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system of the Old Testament priesthood, even of the Old Testament temple. And all of that kind of comes to a conclusion in our text today where uh, Paul is, uh, Paul, the author of Hebrews, could be Paul, but maybe not, uh, is trying to land the plane. Actually, they think Hebrews was a sermon. And so in chapter 10, verses 19 to 31, he's he's kind of touching the wheels down here with what this means for us. So let's read together uh, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'd like to start with a story from what I call my BM days, the before Marguerite days. And I know that BM is already an acronym for something else, but the meaning is, is about the same. My life was crappier without you, Marguerite. So I was a sophomore in college. I was working in the Academic Resource Center, the ARC, as we called it. And I was a writing tutor, and I basically spent my days teaching jocks and delinquents, delinquents and other barbarians you know, how to spell and properly punctuate their papers because nerds need a paycheck too. And uh, one day, my equally nerdy friend James and I were sitting on the couches and in walked two pretty girls. And now this never happened. James looked at me and said, Hunter, look, two pretty girls. And then, even more bizarre, they started walking towards us. And I said, James, they're walking towards us, two pretty girls. And that had never happened before and hasn't happened since. But uh, they come up to us and they start talking to us. And in my memory, it's like that scene in the Lego movie where Emmett is is meeting Wildstyle for the first time. And they're just saying, blah, blah, blah. And I sort of, you know, in a daze. And they're asking me some sort of question to which I say yes. And then they hand me a clipboard with a sheet of paper and I sign it. And I suddenly snap back to reality when they say to me, great, well, your appointment is at 10 a.m. on Wednesday. We'll see you there. I had just signed up to donate my blood at a blood drive. And um, 
that was something I had never done before because I don't like needles. <laughs> and I was not excited to do it. But an elephant is faithful 100%. And so I went to my appointment. They had a, a bus parked on the campus, the blood bus. And um, I go up the stairs of the bus, and they, they sit you in this little room, which is a generous term because it was about the size of a car seat. And I'm sitting in that room waiting for a nurse to come in. And I just assumed that the nurse would be like a kind-faced woman or something. When in walks this burly man, larger than the whole bus, he's bald, he has this orange uh, beard, he has these two crazy eyes, like one is staring at me and the other staring out the window, I'm serious. And then his tongue like snatches a fly out of the air. And, um, you know, he starts asking me all these very personal questions that I wasn't prepared for. So I'm sort of awkwardly trying to engage in small talk. And so I say, well, you know, did you go to medical school before you started working with the Red Cross? He's like, nah, I was in the army. I'm like, oh, well, okay, well, were you a medic in the army? He's like, no, I was a tank driver. A tank driver. So this made me feel really calm. (laughs) And um, this is the pleasant fellow who drew my blood on that horrible, horrible day on the blood bus. And uh, even my blood is is A+. I got that on my blood test. And I really hope that it went to someone uh, in need. Uh, Because from my vantage point, that was a very pointless giving of my blood. It in no way endeared me to pretty girls, and uh, I don't think I learned a single lesson, and my arm still bleeds from having it stabbed by a Viking tank driver. Now, I think about this story often uh, because the Bible uh, is, is actually full of references to blood, Hebrews especially, but even in our worship services. Think of how often we sing about the blood of Christ, and somehow the blood of Christ washes away the stain of sin whiter than snow. If you were uninitiated to Christianity, you might think this is pretty weird. Like, why all this talk about blood? And this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to make clear in chapters 9 to 10. He's saying, the blood of animals, all of these sacrifices, could never deal with the problem of human sin. Only the blood of Jesus, only the blood of God could do that. And so to be serious for a moment, the blood of Christ is completely different from uh, my blood and your blood. You see, Christ giving his blood was not pointless. It was purposeful. What Jesus did through his blood is he did something uh, that he accomplished something by giving his blood. His blood is powerful. We even just sang this in, in the song just a moment ago. Thank you for your death and resurrection. Thank you for the power of your blood. So the, the blood of Jesus was powerful to effect something, to change something on our behalf, to bring us salvation, the gospel, this good news that we talk about so often. The writer of Hebrews says it beautifully this way. He's opened a new and living way to God. And if we want to understand this new and living way, we will have to see that it's about three things, a heavenly reality, a heartfelt response, and a humbling reminder. Heavenly reality, heartfelt response, humbling reminder. And so the first point is this. Jesus's blood ushers in a heavenly reality for us. Jesus did not die a symbolic death. He didn't die to just show us something. He died to do something. His blood was shed to do something. And it tells us in verse 19 what it was. It says, therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, we have a great high priest. 
So these short verses are basically summarizing the argument in the book of Hebrews up until this point, especially chapters 9 to 10, and showing us that Jesus fulfilled everything that the priesthood, that the sacrificial system, even that the temple uh, and the, the tabernacle in the Old Testament was pointing to. And let me try to explain it to you like this. The Garden of Eden was not just a garden, but it was also a temple. Adam and Eve were not just the first man and woman. They were the first priests. What I mean is they were there to administer God's rule. They were the first king and queen, you might say, but they were also priests. What they were intended to do was to mediate God's presence, his blessing to the entire created order. And when God made them, it says he put them in the garden to work it and to keep it or to work it and to guard it. And what's interesting is Moses wrote the book of Genesis. He also wrote the book of Numbers. And later in Numbers, when Moses is describing the job description of a priest, what he says is they are to work and to keep the tabernacle. The same two verbs, work and guard, work and keep. In fact, the more you dig down into this theme, what you will see is that Adam and Eve are priests in a temple in the Garden of Eden. We know this even by the very garments that the high priest would wear. In Exodus, after the Ten Commandments in the second half of that book, God commands them to make holy garments uh, for Aaron, who is the high priest at that time. And it was something that he would wear as the high priest and all high priests after him. And you know that the, the tabernacle and later the temple was two rooms. The first room, the bigger room, was called the holy place, and the second room was called the most holy place. And in the most holy place, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And there, only one time every year, the high priest, and he only could go into that most holy place. And as he did, he wore this, um, these holy garments. And the holy garments, were told, are made of a golden ephod with onyx stones on the shoulders. And now, that seems like a strange detail uh, until you think back to Genesis 2, where there's this random phrase, it's almost inserted in Genesis 2. It says, the, the, land, the, the gold in that land was good. There was, there was very much gold in the land and onyx. So even the garments that the priests are wearing are reflecting uh, Eden. But not only that, the, the artistry that went into the tabernacle and the temple, the very design was meant to reflect the Garden of Eden. We see this best in 1 Kings 6. Solomon uh, the temple is built under him. They go from a tabernacle to a temple. And uh, if you read in 1 Kings 6, listen to this, to this description of the temple. It sounds a lot like the Garden of Eden. Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, the holy place and the most holy place. It says, in the inner sanctuary, the most holy place, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub. And they each touched the wall and they met in the middle and the ark was underneath it. And then listen to this. Around all the walls of the house, he engraved uh, figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and the outer rooms. If you, if you start to look at the detail, the, the design of the temple, it's floral, it's Edenic. It's, it's meant to uh, conjure up images of this garden, even having those two cherubim on the, the curtain or the door in the temple. You know, when Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden, this, you might say this is the main problem the Bible is trying to pose. Adam is meant to be God's original holy priest, a royal priest, mediating his presence in the garden to all of creation, and he instead rebels against God, and the, the, the person who's supposed to be the priest of all of creation is now driven out of the temple, and there's cherubim placed there to guard his way back in. 
and they're driven east of Eden. And the temple is oriented to the east so that when the high priests and the, the regular priests would come in and do these sacrifices, they're literally retracing the steps to get back into the, the presence of God. And these cherubim that are guarding the way to the garden and on the curtain and on the door of the temple, uh, cherubs are not naked, chubby toddlers. Did you know that they're like terrifying monsters? Uh, you know, we don't know exactly what they look like because the Bible doesn't tell us, but we know from other cultures in the ancient Near East that cherubim were thought of as uh, these, these creatures with lion bodies and human faces and giant wings. These are fearsome, terrifying, holy creatures meant to guard the way to the presence of God. And so the major problem that Genesis 3 presents is this, how can man who is now completely tainted with sin, ever get back into the presence of God? How can he find a way back in? You might remember that in that very moment, right before he's driven out, God sacrifices an animal. And this is like another event in the Old Testament, another one of the greatest redemptive events in the Old Testament, which would be the Passover, the Exodus from Egypt, where God delivers his people through the blood of a sacrifice on the door. He passes over the, the, the homes that place their faith in this sacrifice. And that's how he takes his people out of, of slavery to Pharaoh. Did you know that the word uh, exodus is actually two Greek words? One word is hados, which means way, and the prefix ex, which means out, like exit. So literally the word exodus means the way out. That's what the, the word means, the way out. And this is what Moses did. He's probably the greatest Old Testament Christ figure who leads the people through this exodus. But the problem is, even if that were the ultimate exodus, and it wasn't, but that would only be 50% of the problem. They, we, need, we needed not to be only delivered out of slavery to sin, but we needed to get back into the presence of God. We need not only an exodus, but an exodus. That's the Greek word for the way in. And even Moses couldn't do that. They set up a tabernacle, and the, the whole tabernacle, the whole sacrificial system, in a way, was showing them the way in to the presence of God is, is still blocked. It's still not, things aren't just chummy, right? They have uh, the tabernacles on this giant curtain. The high priest can only go in once a year. In all of these sacrifices, they purified everything with blood in the temple, all these vessels. They came and they sprinkled blood on the altar of incense. And then one day a year, they would go through and, sp and sprinkle blood on the very Ark of the Covenant. It was never enough to make a way in for the people. No amount of blood could do it. In fact, the bloodiest chapter in the Bible is probably 1 Kings 8, where Solomon dedicates the temple after it is built, the largest animal sacrifice we know of. In a single day... It says he offered 120,000 sheep and 22,000 oxen. Now, if you're squeamish, I apologize, but did you know you can Google the animal blood volume of different animals? I did this work for you. You're welcome. So um, sheep have four liters of blood in their body, okay? The average male adult has five liters, so just think about that. Anyway, cattle have around 30 liters, and I'm sure oxen would be higher, but I couldn't find that one. So let's just say four liters for a sheep and 30 liters for an oxen, okay? So that would be 120,000 sheep and 22,000 oxen. That would be 480,000 liters of sheep blood, and that would be 660,000 liters of oxen blood. 
or combined 1.14 million liters of blood total on this one day. Now, that would be 301,156 gallons. And to try to paint a picture for you, have you seen these tank trucks? They're like semi-trucks uh, semi or tra uh, tractor trailers. And they have those large tanks on the back, the full ones. Those hold around 10,000 gallons. So it would be about 30 of those filled with blood. Or one more, if you've been to downtown Gilbert, that historic water tower holds about 50,000 gallons of water. So 1.14 million liters would fill that over six times. Just, just think of all this blood being shed. Think, think if you were there for that moment. You would have to think to yourself, surely this will do it. If there was ever a sacrifice that was going to usher us back into the presence of God, wouldn't this do it? And the answer was no. Oceans and oceans of animal blood spilled made us no closer to the presence of God. Think of not only all the blood shed on that day, but across all the centuries of the Jewish people sacrificing. Hebrews 9.22 says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But then it says in Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what does it mean and why is it happening? Well, the whole point of the animal sacrifice, of the sacrificial system, Hebrews calls it a copy of the heavenly reality. It's there to illustrate a theological lesson. It says in Leviticus that the life is in the blood. So every time you sinned and you took an animal to sacrifice, you would know at least th uh, three things, maybe. You would know, one, that your sins against God deserve death. This animal's life is being ended in your place. You would know that death is the penalty for your sin, and you would know that God has graciously given you a substitute. It's your death that ought to be there, but the animal is functioning as a substitute for you. But the third thing you would have to think is you would have to say, there must be, at some point, if we are ever going to get back in to the presence of God, there must be some sacrifice that actually does the trick. There has to be some sacrifice that gets us all the way in, that gets this curtain, that gets this door broken down between us. But what would it take? What sort of being's blood would be able to fix this? And Hebrews 9, 23 to 26 gives the answer. It says this in Hebrews 9, 23. It says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to have suffered repeatedly. But as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus is not only the ultimate priest, he's the ultimate sacrifice. And, and the sacrifice that this priest brings is himself. And he brings it not only into the most holy place, the copy on earth, he, he takes it into the heavenly holy place, the reality of which the whole temple, the whole sacrificial system is just a pencil drawing. It's just a sketch. It's just an outline. Jesus goes to the very presence of God. 
Hebrews 10 says, all of these things in the Old Testament were but a shadow of the good things to come. They weren't the true form of the reality, but Jesus is the true form. He is the true sacrifice. And what he did with his blood is he opened a way for us. This is what it says. It says, he opened for us a new and living way to enter the holy places through the curtain that is through his flesh. This curtain in the temple in in Jesus' day, it would have been, they think, probably 60 feet tall. So that would be like a multiple-story building. be pretty tall, 60 feet. And later Jewish writers, uh, they say that it might have been about four inches thick. I got uh, sucked into a rabbit hole, rabbit trail. I can't... uh, I was following a rabbit on YouTube, and I was watching these, um, uh, these videos of people ripping phone books in half. You ever seen this before? I would love to learn how to do that, but I was thinking about this, this giant curtain, you know, 60 feet tall, and it says in the Gospels that when Jesus was crucified in that instant, the curtain was ripped from the top as if, as if God grabbed it like this phone book and just rent it, and what the writer of Hebrews says is Jesus himself was torn. Jesus himself was ripped in his flesh through his suffering. A way was made open. But get this, a way was made open not into the holy place so we can all go be tourists or something like that, but into the very presence of God, the heavenly presence of God. The Greek word here, it says in verse 19, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That Greek word for enter is asados, a way in. That is what Jesus has made for us. This is the gospel. And this is how precious the blood of Jesus is. He is able by his single sacrifice to do what oceans and oceans of animal sacrifices could not do, to give us direct access to God himself. So that's the heavenly reality. How do we respond to this? With all of our heart, we should have a heartfelt response. And this is our second point. The author of Hebrews was a Presbyterian pastor because he gives you three responses that you should have to this. I can't make this stuff up. It's literally here. So he says, since we have confidence to enter the holy place and since we have a great high priest, he says three times, let us do this. In verse 22, he says, let us draw near. In verse 23, let us hold fast. And in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So here's your application in three ways. The first one is, let us draw near. It says in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the author of Hebrews says the first thing we should do is draw near. We have access to the very presence of God and we are to draw near to him. And if you were a Jew hearing that, it would take a little bit of convincing because a lot of the messaging in the Old Testament was the exact opposite. You should not draw near to God. He is a holy God and you are not like him. In fact, when Moses sees the burning bush, God does not say, come over here, I wanna show you something. He says, do not draw near. Take off your shoes. Stop right where you are. When God gives the 10 commandments on Mount Sinai, he instructs Moses, he says, set limits around the mountain. Don't let anyone touch it. They had to bathe themselves before they came to it. He says, if anyone touches this mountain, they will die. That is what God says in the Old Testament. And here, the author of Hebrews is saying, we should draw near. Why should we draw near? Because the new and living way that Jesus has made is he's made a way for us to be adopted into God's family as his sons, as his children. I'm learning in a profound way with a toddler 
that there is no such thing as a boundary. You remember boundaries? I do. Back when I, back when I had them. <laughs> you see, my daughter is a force of nature, and she's just learned how to open doors, and that has changed my life. Because I'm in a bedroom rocking my infant son to sleep with a sound machine. I'm shushing him. It's dark. It's peaceful. And then, bam, Eloise like, opens the door. Here I am. You know? And she's like, I want a snack. I want a snack. I'm like, I'll get you a snack. I just have to put your brother to sleep first. And she's like, Bluey? One episode of Bluey? One? It's like, okay. Maybe, but, but why, why, why don't we have any sort of boundary here? And it, they, they don't exist anywhere. They don't exist in public. You could be taking a shower and suddenly the curtain is torn asunder and they're throwing toys at you, just as a hypothetical, you know? And what this, what this verse is saying is, get this, it's not saying that your relationship with God is just like a father to a, a son that he loves. That would be silly, He's saying it's even greater than that. It's even closer than that. That analogy is actually just the copy of the heavenly thing. The same way that marriage between a man and a woman is just a copy of the real heavenly reality of the marriage that God longs for his bri- with his bride, that the father-son, the parent-child relationship is just a dim reflection. It's a pencil sketch. It's an outline of the real thing, which means this, you can have more confidence more boldness, that's what that word means in Hebrew, than, than my daughter does storming into a bathroom. You have access because of the gospel to, to be bold in your approach to God. And what this means is, this means that Jesus's blood tore the curtain so that you can go through the holy place into the most holy place up to the very throne of God. And you can go and tug on his sleeves and you can ask him to help you you can find grace in time of need. We ought to draw near. It's an amazing thing. How do we draw near? He explains as we go on. The second one is, let us draw near, but also let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, it's interesting, the three Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love, all appear in these three um, applications. So in the first one, he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, the second thing he says is let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And then in the third one, he comes to love. But I think it's interesting that he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Because normally when we think of a confession, we think of a confession of faith. But here it's not about what you believe, it's about how you believe it. He says, hold fast to this hope that you have, this hope of heaven. Like a priest, you are to work and to keep, you're to work and to guard, you're to guard this hope that God has given you. And this means at least two things. It means making sure your hope is not in the wrong place, but making sure your hope is in the gospel as the Bible describes it. And secondly, it means making sure that your hope is strong enough to endure the trials that will come your way. If we want to make it into heaven, then we will be like the Israelites sojourning through the wilderness, entering into the promised land with dangers on every side. And there are many moments Many manners in which our hope is tested. It's physical suffering. It's financial hardship. It's heartbreak, betrayal. It's pain caused by those outside of the church, but it's also pain caused by those inside of the church, sometimes even positions of leadership. Hold fast your hope, he says. Hold it fast. That means cling to it. And now here is why. He says, because he who promised is faithful. I have a really good friend of mine, she was a staff partner when I did campus ministry. And 
Like we were in the trenches together, sharing the gospel on this campus and making disciples. And a dear friend of not only me, but of Marguerite, and um, she had a, uh, moved to a different campus in a different state, had a very bad experience under the leadership there. And she, by her own profession, is in this process of deconstructing uh, her faith. And maybe you've heard that terminology, when people are deconstructing their faith, they're, they grew up in the church, they might have been, had a vibrant faith, it seems. But then they get to this point where suddenly she used this word, these words. She said, it's like there was this thing built of Legos and it's just smashed on the floor and I see all the pieces and I know what it used to be, but I don't know how to put it back together again. I don't even know if I want to put it back together again. And it's heartbreaking and I've prayed with her and I've cried with her and we've had multiple conversations about it. And I remember this, after several conversations when I felt like I had the access to, to ask her this, I said, look, I know, I know what you think about Christianity. I know what you think about the church. I know what you think about the campus ministry or whatever, but what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about him? Has that changed? And it gave her something to think about. I mean, she didn't like repent and come back to church in that moment, but it was funny. She had nothing to say against Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to make sure that you ground your hope in the right thing. Hold fast, why? Because he who promised is faithful. Churches will let you down. Parents will let you down. Pastors will let you down. Jesus never will. Let's hold fast our hope for him. Let's draw near. Let's hold fast our hope. But finally, let's consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we draw near by faith. We persevere by hope. And we stir up one another to love. Now, this is an interesting word. It's kind of a fun word, that phrase, stir up one another. Um, it's actually a noun in Greek, and it only occurs one other time in the New Testament. It's in Acts chapter 15, verse 39, where Paul, who's a missionary, is talking with Barnabas, another missionary, and they have this sharp disagreement over whether or not John Mark should come with them. And the same word that means stir up here in Hebrews means sharp disagreement in Acts 15:39. So what's going on here? You, you kind of love to find things like this. There's a verbal form of that same word in two other places. In Acts 17, it says Paul is, uh, he's in Athens. And it says, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols, provoked. Or, this one's in interesting, in 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter on love you may have heard, it says this, love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It's the same root as this word that we're, talking about, to stir up, to provoke, to irritate. Literally, it's like he's saying, like, piss each other off <laughs> to do good works and to love. It's a, it's a like, shocking thing to say. My mom watched the first service and said, please don't say piss off in the second service. She said, I hate that word. And I said, I'm totally going to say it. <laughs> to irritate her. To no, I'm just kidding. But you get the idea. This, this is a word that's like, why would you choose that word? Why not just say motivate each other to love and good works? It made me think of um, The Last Dance and Michael Jordan and how he was famous for uh, irritating and provoking his teammates. They interview these people and it's like they've got PTSD from playing with him because he was so violent. He even punched Steve Kerr in the face one time. He's the coach of the Warriors right now. But So anyway, they're interviewing uh, all of these people about playing with Michael and then they finally ask him. Uh, why, why were you like this? And here's what Michael Jordan says. He says, my mentality was to go out there and win at any cost. 
If you don't want to live that regimented mentality, then you don't need to be alongside of me because I'm going to ridicule you until you get on the same level as me. And if you don't get on the same level, then it's going to be hell for you. And that's what Jordan did for his teammates. Now, thankfully, we follow Christ and not Michael Jordan, and the church is not a basketball team. But the, the, the illustration holds, we have something so much more important to do than win basketball championships. We are so much closer than a team. We are a body. We ought to be stirring up one another. We ought to be getting under each other's skin in the godliest way possible to provoke each other toward greater good works. Let us consider how to stir up one another. One, one scholar said it has the idea of like stoking a fire. That's why the ESV says stir up. It's like you're just trying to get the fire going again because it's not. Now, I would have loved it if the author of Hebrews had said, and here are some techniques to do that. Uh, he doesn't say that, but notice what he does say. It's almost like it's, it's a thought very well connected to it. He says, here's what you should not do. If you want to stir up one another loving good works, here's the one thing you don't do. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, do you know what that phrase, do not neglect to meet together, means in the original Greek? It means do not neglect to meet together. <laughs> it, it just means come to church. It just means go to church. It just means don't stop coming together. This is like the text that people point to when they say, you're a Christian, you should go to church. Why? Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Do not neglect to meet together. That was a habit that was beginning to form in some people's lives. And he says, you've got to nip that in the bud. You've got to get to church. They didn't have a live stream. And the live stream is great. It's, it's a blessing. It's helpful for me just to go back and re-listen to things and catch up. I was out of town for a few weeks. And some people are out of town. And some people are bedridden. And they're unable to come physically. And those are special circumstances. And God knows that those are special circumstances. But God is not dumb. <laughs> he knows that they're special circumstances. And you and I know that they're special circumstances. Come to church. There is no substitute for physically worshiping together in a building with physical believers in a physical place. And here are two great reasons why. The first is it gets you out of your solitary conceit. This is a C.S. Lewis quote, your solitary conceit. That means the pride and arrogance that you develop when you're left by yourself. C.S. Lewis was talking to an audience and he was addressing them and uh, answering questions that they were asking him. And someone asked C.S. Lewis, how important is church attendance and membership for living a successful Christian life? And here's what C.S. Lewis said. My own experience is that when I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought that I could do it on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology. And I wouldn't go to the churches and the gospel halls. And then I later found that it was the only way of flying your flag. And of course, I found this meant being a target. It's extraordinary how inconvenient to your family it becomes for you to get up early and go to church. It doesn't so much matter if you get up early for anything else, but if you get up early to go to church, it's very selfish of you and you upset the house. If there is anything in the teaching of the New Testament which is in the nature of a command, it is that you are obliged to take the sacrament, and you can't do it without going to church. I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music, but... As I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education. And then gradually, my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth-rate music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit 
by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew, and then you realize you aren't worthy to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. You see, what if church is intended to give you something different than what you want? What if God knows what you need and it's not just what you prefer? We ought to come to church. We ought to draw near with faith. We ought to draw, draw near thinking that God himself has orchestrated the pieces, that God himself has chosen the text, that God himself has chosen the readings and the calls and the response and even the songs. And our music here is way better than fifth and sixth rate. It's awesome. So that's not a great excuse. God wants you to come to church to speak to you. This is his house. We are his temple. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. But second, and maybe more importantly, the verse says that we are to stir up one another and encourage one another to love and good works. Your job as a Christian is to provoke other people to more love and to more good works. How do you do that from your living room? How do you do that if you're not part of a body? We call it authentic community here at New Valley. And part of being an authentic community is just this. You're living life with people. You're worshiping together. This is a critical part of the heartfelt response to the gospel. And there are some profound reasons why people stop coming to church. I am aware. There are people who have immense physical suffering. There are people who have church hurt, who don't know if they can trust a pastor anymore. And there are even people with little kids. And I have great empathy now for people with little kids because it's like, especially moms, I'm like, sometimes you just show up, you just walk in the room, you walk out, you nurse your kid, and then you drive home. It's like, why did you do that? Because in God's mysterious way, he is still ministering to you. You're digesting food, you're breathing oxygen, even if you're not aware, come to church. The heartfelt response to this heavenly reality. He ends with a humbling reminder, and it's not a long point, it's just a conclusion. But in this last paragraph, he says, why? Why should we take all of this so serious? It balances, in a way, this fact that we can go up and tug on the the shirt of God. He says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, these people would have had a great understanding of the Mosaic Covenant, and they would have known that if you violated that covenant, there were penalties that you would suffer, like being stoned to death and things of this nature. What the writer of Hebrews is saying, the author of Hebrews is saying, is that this new covenant is so much greater, it's so much superior in every single way, that the punishment is worse if you violate this. It's a warning, not to non-believers, but it's a warning to people in the church. He's saying, do not apostatize. Do not, do not leave this covenant just as the way we saw someone baptized into the covenant today. He says, you're a part of this covenant community. Now you know the promises of God. Now you know what the blood of Christ is meant to do. Don't lose this. Not only don't lose this as an individual, but as a church, do not lose holding on to hope in Christ. And it sounds weird to us, but in in the, the church that this was addressed to, what they would have left Christ for was the Old Testament sacrificial system. They were tempted by the temple. They wanted to go back to those sacrifices. And maybe it's because there was clout to being a part of the temple service. Maybe it was because they could do something and it felt like they were accomplishing something by their works. But what he says is that if you've trampled underfoot the Son of God, there is no longer sacrifice for your sins as a community. If you lose this gospel, you are in great danger. So I want to end with this question. What is our tempting temple? Is it materialism? Is it Marxism? 
Is it nationalism, American exceptionalism? It could be paganism or Phariseeism. It doesn't matter. All the isms, they will not give you what they promise. Only the gospel gives you what is promised. There's only one way, and it's through the blood of Jesus. He opened a new way. It's new because the temple is outdated. He opened a living way because he is alive in the very presence of God living to intercede for us. Let us draw near to him. And as we do, we are priests in this house of God. All of us are priests. We work and we keep. We, we, we keep and we guard this hope. We hold on to it. We cherish it. And we work to stir up each other to love and good works. And all the more as the day is drawing near. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for the amazing privilege that uh, we can come into your presence. God, we can, we can come boldly and with confidence like little children. You don't shoo us away, uh, but you welcome us into your, your arms. And we pray in this moment, God, that uh, we would be able, uh, just by the power of your spirit, uh, to grasp uh, for, for a minute as we worship and as we take the Lord's Supper, that we could grasp the heavenly reality uh, of this privilege. I pray, God, if anyone here does not know you and doesn't know this wonderful privilege, I pray that they would see that you are the way. Through your flesh, through the curtain that was torn in your body, you opened a new and living way. And God, for all of us, believe it or not, God, would we be able to sing in a way that uh, is, is worthy and commendable of this great reality in your holy name. Amen.